Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Jimmy Johnson, former driver of the number 48 Hendrick Motorsport Chevrolet, Came to NASCAR, made his incredible mark on the sport over a 20-year period, then walked away quietly and intently, like following a well-written script. The native of El Cajun, California, calmly went about his business of racking up seven Cup Series titles and 83 victories from 2001 through 2020, as easily as reading the newspaper. Then he stepped away from the spotlight and moved to IndyCars, where he plans to hopefully find his piece of glory and fame before leaving the driver's seat altogether. He was so vanilla in his delivery of wins and championships that possibly some of his accomplishments weren't taken as seriously as they should have been. He was as smooth, easygoing, almost matter-of-fact about it all. The Johnsons were a normal, hardworking family. His mother, Kathy, worked as a school bus driver part-time, and his father, Gary, operated heavy machinery. The oldest of the sons proved he could handle the 50cc motorcycles by the age of five and won his first championship at the age of eight while racing the larger 60cc motorcycles. Johnson also spent years racing trucks both off-road and in stadiums, winning his first championship there at 17 before graduating from suburban San Diego's Granite Hills High School in 1993. By 1998, Johnson entered what was racing's American Speed Association, where he won Rookie of the Year honors. Then in 2000, he moved to NASCAR's Busch Series, where he raced to six top 10 finishes and finished 10th in points. All told, he had 93 starts in the series, logging one victory for team owner Stanley Herzog at Chicago in 2001. Johnson entered the NASCAR Cup Series full-time that year after being recruited to drive the number 48 Lowe's Chevrolet Monte Carlo owned by Rick Hendrick and four-time Cup Series champion Jeff Gordon. By the end of 2006, he had 23 wins to his credit as well as his first Cup Series championship. The magic with crew chief Chad Knauss really began to gel as by the end of 2010, they had five Cup Series championships. Two more titles followed in 2013 and 2016, equaling the efforts of seven-time champion Richard Petty and the late Dale Earnhardt. Wanting to desperately master just one more title to make it eight Cup Series titles, Johnson fell short, struggling to capture wins in his final three seasons before leaving NASCAR competition at the end of the 2020 season. Still, he will always be remembered as one of NASCAR's greatest ambassadors and NASCAR's quiet and most beloved champions. Episode number 48 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. I mean, we've got, this is what, our I think our 18th episode together. And man, the time has flown. But I've been looking forward especially to this week's episode because, you know, we've had a couple of uh, episodes over, over the last couple of months that, you know, there has not been a, let's just say there has not been a, a great wealth of guys who won in certain numbers of cars, certain car numbers. Well, man, we've got a guy today that we are going to talk a lot about, and that is the former driver of the number 48, the seven-time cup champion, Jimmy Johnson, who now is in the IndyCar series. We're going to talk a lot about Jimmy here in the next uh, half hour or so, and I guess the best place to start off with, Jim uh, Ben, is, you know, Jimmy came from such an unpredictable uh, background. You know, he started out in Southern California, where he grew up outside of San Diego. He was actually... 
an, an off-road motorcycle racer for a long time. And then he also did some off-road racing in four-wheel cars. And then he eventually got into the ASA series and then he came to NASCAR. But, you know, he came in such a unusual route. I mean, he's not from the South or Southeast. He, you know, he, he really didn't get into stock car racing until he got into the ASAs. And for him to become one of the greatest drivers the sport has ever seen, tied with Richard Petty and the late Dale Earnhardt for the most championships per driver, which is seven. Um, you know, Jimmy just came so far, so fast. And, you know, the one thing that I always like to think of when I think of Jimmy Johnson is not only is he a great and gracious champion, he is just a great human being. I mean, very down to earth. I mean, you can talk to him about anything. Um, you know, there's a lot of drivers, you know, obviously you and I know that we've come across in our, our lifetimes that, you know, have been very, uh, they can be boisterous. They can be, um, you know, as I like to say, loud. Um, yeah. But Jimmy is just very, you know, he's been very down to earth and, you know, he's trying to make it now in the IndyCar series, something that he's long held a, uh, a desire to do. Uh, he's in his second season now. This will be actually his first full season running all this, the 17 races. But let's start with Jimmy Johnson back in the day. I mean, when, here's a kid that comes out of sub, uh, suburban San Diego, running motorcycles, running off-road cars. And he hit, uh, the, the story goes, and I, and I want to get your take, obviously, but I, I'm going to give you this real quick story. The story goes that Jimmy was... Um, I can't remember if it was the Baja 1000 or the Baja 500. It was some kind of Baja race, if I remember correctly. And so he's uh, in his car or his, you know, his uh, off-road car, and he gets into a crash and into a rocks area. And he gets in an area where they can't find him. And he's spending yeah. several hours, as the story goes, essentially sitting on a boulder contemplating his future because he was at a point in his racing career that he just didn't know what direction to go. And he loves to tell this story that somehow he got uh, divine inspiration, I guess is probably the best way to phrase it, that he should back off of the off-road racing and try his hand at stock car racing. And that was kind of where he led into the ASA ranks. And then of course, eventually NASCAR, but you know, Jimmy has got such great stories. Tell me, you know, if you have like one favorite story of Jimmy, uh, I'd like to hear that. But let's let's go back to the you know back in the days. I mean, when he first started out, I mean, I don't think anybody could have picked the success that he had. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Jerry. And, you know, the, the story you're referring to, um, if I'm telling it correctly, was it was a 24 hour Baja race. Mm -hmm. And he and, and that's as simple as it sounds, if I'm telling it correctly. If I'm talking about the same race, he's, he basically fell asleep. He was, <laughs> he was he was actually driving, and it was one of those 24-hour races, and he fell asleep and he crashed. And uh, yeah, and and so they were in a remote area, and it's like, well, I don't know, are they ever going to find us? You yep. know, one of those deals. And so he he did. He kind of had a plenty of time to sort of think about his career, think about you know, what am, am I, is this really what I want to be doing? And, you know, and, and to put all this in perspective, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, San Diego versus uh, Rockingham, okay? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> or Charlotte. I mean, this is so far removed right. from the NASCAR uh, uh, realm or arena, if you will. And you think, well, how did a guy like Jimmy Johnson, of all people, end up in NASCAR? Well, I mean, of course, he had been watching NASCAR races with his dad uh, there in San Diego, even though he was working in that end of it. And, of course, had connections with Chevrolet mm -hmm. because he was getting some funding from Chevrolet on that end of things. And, uh, and so one thing led to another, but he still had to – it wasn't handed to him. He still had to come over – to the East coast and, and find, get the right connections and, and meet the right people. And, uh, and that's how it all came together for him. It wasn't just, they didn't say, here's the greatest car. Here's the greatest team. You're the Jimmy Johnson. This is what, what needs to happen for you. We're going to just hand it all over to you on a silver platter. That's not the way it worked. And so, uh, he, he did drive in the ASA division, the American Speed Association division. He did mm -hmm. go into the Bush series uh, and worked his way into the Cup series and basically was, to, uh, uh, was discovered by Jeff Gordon because he saw what kind of success this kid had. But, I mean, the thing that, talking about Jimmy, 
every time I've talked to Jimmy and he came, come, came into the cup series in 2001. So we're talking 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he has, I have never really seen him upset. And then the times that I have seen what would you would classify as being upset with somebody, you just want to say up it a little, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, he never really got, I've never seen him quote angry mm-hmm. at anybody. And he's always had this personality of being, and I hate to use it. I know he gets tired of people saying it, but it's sort of like a vanilla type personality. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I've always admired that about Jeff. I've always admired that about, about Jimmy, that I've been in many press conferences and you have also where someone honestly would ask a question and they didn't, they didn't mean it in a bad way. They didn't mean it. It was maybe in an uneducated sort of way where they would ask a question that was, well, not very, uh, not very educated <laughs> and, not, and, and almost to the point of saying, does, does, does a stock car have four wheels? Almost. <laughs> those, one of those types of questions. Right. And they would never look at them and say, you're, you're just, why would you ask such a question? We've, we've been on that end of it. You and I both have. Yep. And they would say, well, yes, they have four wheels and they have four tires and they have in the past five lug nuts, not now, but in the, they would answer him respectfully. And, and Jimmy has always, always, always been that way. No matter how, how hard the question was, how left field the question was. How dumb the question was. How dumb the question was. <laughs> he would always, always answer it that way and in a very respectful mm-hmm. manner. And so people would say, maybe take that to mean, well, you're just not uh, aggressive or, but, but believe me, the guy could drive the wheels off of a race car. He's proven that 83 victories in his career, seven championships, but the way his personality has always been, it's sort of, it was sort of like swept from the carpet. You follow what I'm saying, yes. Jerry, because Definitely. it's like, because of that lack of aggression outside the race car, people would think, well, you know, where, I mean, he won seven championships, good Lord. And 83 races, he tied Cale Yarborough for the number of wins in the cup series, but he's just a vanilla sort of guy. So he comes into the cup series. He does this thing for 20 years. He waves to the crowd, steps out of the 48 car and goes and tries his hand at Indy cars. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you, you saw him, but you didn't see him. It's sort of like a smoke and mirrors thing with Jimmy. And, but the nicest guy in the world, but I can tell you firsthand, we had this long in-depth conversation once about the fact that he does not like mayonnaise. He absolutely cannot handle mayonnaise. <laughs> and it's like, what? what's the deal, bud? It's like, what? No, no, I cannot do mayonnaise. I'll do mustard, you know, have a ham sandwich, but I cannot do mayonnaise. What, what about Miracle Whip? Miracle Whip, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> No, and it was just, we, I think we were sitting in a, I think we were sitting in a, press conference after a press conference at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And we were, I was talking about something off the wall and he's like, dude, what is the deal? Why did you put mayonnaise on the ham sandwich you're having? (laughs) It's like, because I always eat mayonnaise. It's like, no, man, you can't mayonnaise. Yuck. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So, well, you do not, what's the deal? You do you not have mayonnaise in San Diego or El Cajun? What's the deal? (laughs) No. Yes, we do. But, oh, yuck. Yuck. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you'd have thought I was shot him or something. <laughs> that, that's like that old that line uh, Clint Eastwood had in one of I can't remember which Dirty Harry movie it was. I think it was this. Um, I don't know if it was actually Dirty. I might have actually been Dirty Harry the the first one. But he he um, he's talking to his partner who's eating a hot dog with ketchup on it. And I, this classic line, kind of like what what you're saying about Jimmy with mayonnaise. He uh, Clint says to his partner, he says, "Nobody, but nobody should have a hot dog with ketchup on it." Yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I remember the movie. I just don't remember the title. But right. it's one of those times when, when Jimmy like did this little shiver. It's like, okay, calm down. We do that <laughs> in the South. Okay. <laughs> Relax, dude. It's going to be okay. But, you know, it's just, he's just a very down to earth guy. And he, if you didn't, if you were under a rock and you had no idea who he was, and he walked into, say, a restaurant or convenience store in order to have a pack of gum or I'm going to pay you for my gas. I mean, he's just that kind of guy, very calm, very relaxed, somebody that you be honored to be around. Oh, I would always, he's just, and if you ask him for directions to go to a local supermarket or something, yeah, just go down this road, take a left, go down about two miles, take another right. 
and you'd never, okay, see you later. Have a good day. And <laughs> just never, don't buy mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, just don't buy mayonnaise. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so just a super, super nice guy. And it's just, believe me, uh, you, you wouldn't put seven-time champion aggressive uh, 200 miles an hour on backstretch at Daytona, uh, battling for position. You, you don't put that together with Jimmy and his personality. Well, you know, let me ask you a question. And this is, you know, I, I don't often deal with intangibles, but I, I'm going to bring this up because I, this is something that's, I, I don't want to use the word bothered. This is always, I, I guess I'd say I'm, I've always questioned this. That's probably a better way of saying it. Would Jimmy have been, and I and believe me, I totally agree with you about, first of all, about his personality. I love the guy. I mean, he's just a, a treat to talk to. He's always yes. amenable, always talks. You know, he, you, you ask him a question, no matter how good, bad, ugly, dumb, he, he will answer you in a very respectful manner, like you said. But I often have wondered, especially, I, I think I started thinking about this maybe after the second or third championship, where would he have won even more races and more championships if he may have developed a little bit more of, a, of an edge, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say, you know, you know, could he, you know, I mean, could he have developed an edge like, like Daryl Waltrip in his prime? Cause Daryl obviously was a little, he was a little edgy at that time or, or Dale Earnhardt for, for that matter. Jimmy just, you know, he was very um, almost like monotonic, you know, straight, straight down the middle kind of, kind of guy uh, never, you know, uh, solicited, nor did he ever, uh, get involved in any type of controversy. Um, you know, do you think he would have done more or achieved more that may have allowed him to stand out, you know, over and above Petty and Earnhardt and some of the other greats if he would have been more, more feisty if, if or more, you know, I mean, he was aggressive behind the wheel. He let his drive and do the talking for him. But from a personality standpoint, if he would have been a little bit more, you know, a, a fiery, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder, would he have been more successful? Do you think? Um, possibly so, but I think it was a situation in his case where I don't know that he knew how to. Is because I think he his personality just wouldn't let him do that. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, take take Daryl Waltrip for instance. I mean, Daryl was totally the opposite of that. He wasn't mean about what he did. It's just uh, he, he sometimes he needed a restrictor play, a personal restrictor play <laughs> in Daryl's case right. where he would, you know, he just could not keep his mouth shut sometimes. Right. And he would even admit that. So there were times I needed to be quiet. I couldn't be quiet. Where in, in Jimmy's case, he would say, OK, I'll just um, I'll keep my mouth shut for now, but I'll just do what I can do on the racetrack and show them what I need to do. And I'll, let me say this, Joey, I'll, I'll use myself as, as an example of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When I do, when I'm behind the microphone, a lot of times when I'm doing like national TV type stuff or what I'm doing, maybe sometimes even this podcast, it, I have to struggle to, um, to get a little more, vibrant about mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. My personality is I'm not one of the loudest guys in the room. I'm very happy being in the back of the room and right. I'm not, I'm not a Daryl Waltrip type. I, I consider myself more of a Jimmy Johnson quieter type person. Mm -hmm. So, so I can relate to what Jimmy is. It's a real struggle to get that way. Okay. It's a, it's a struggle for me to get excited about what I'm trying to talk about right. sometimes and so in Jimmy's case, it was very much the same way that it's all you can do in those cases to get uh, to, to voice more than you have. And I think Jimmy's very much that way. He's so laid back and he's so calm and quiet. And I think that's, the again, what I said before, I think that's what strikes me the most about Jimmy. He's done so much on the racetrack. And he's the envy of thousands of race car drivers that have run in, in the Cup Series. But so much of his accomplishment has, not, I won't say I've been overlooked, but maybe not appreciated. Appreciate it, right. Agreed. Yep. Yeah, because he has done so much, but yet he hasn't done what you're talking about. Stood there and beat his chest and said, look how great I am, because it's just not his personality to do that. But he's won seven championships with right there on center stage with Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. And if you look at those two guys, they scratched and clawed mm -hmm. 
those years to win those championships. And I, I have to say, Jimmy made it look a little bit easy. I mean, he won five in a row from 2006 to 2010, and then came back in 2013 and 2016 to win the other two. And, uh, wow, I mean, he's like, oh, okay, there's another championship for Jimmy. <laughs> it's just he just made it look easy. Right. And, and it wasn't easy, but he made it look easy. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, and, and it's going to sound like an unfair question, but I definitely mean it with all fairness. Uh-huh. When Jimmy won, particularly those five championships in a row, which obviously is one of the probably the, the, the most um, difficult records that will ever be broken. I mean, there are guys, I mean, I could see Kyle Larson potentially doing it, but the point is this. When Jimmy won those five in a row from 2006 to 2010, Unfortunately, at that time, the same time is when we started having big problems with the overall world economy, the global economy. We started seeing teams fold. We started seeing a a significant downturn in attendance and even just attention to the sport on TV by fans. TV ratings went down. Um, you know, we, we had that recession and that started in 2007 all the way to about 2009 or so. Um, I remember very clearly that the 2008 season in particular, I mean, I was one of many people that was laid off at the end of that season because of the economy. But we saw a number of people, you know, in race teams that were laid off. We saw a number of race teams either scale back or just completely go out of business. And again, this is, I, I, I'm trying not to make this an unfair question to you, but could Jimmy's um, lack of notoriety, and it's, it's hard to put the words lack of notoriety in the same sentence as a guy who won 83 races and seven championships, but I mean, could the lack of notoriety um, stem from the fact that he was so successful at a time when NASCAR was in a very significant transitional phase and also a downturn phase in terms of attention tv ratings and that kind of thing um well there might have been some factors uh according to that but i i also think uh there there was a tremendous amount of chemistry between he and chad canals at Mm -hmm. that time Mm -hmm. back if you think back to cliff daniels when cliff daniels was his crew chief in the final year in 2020 that couldn't connect they right. just could not make anything work right where and then but you look at 2021 with cliff daniels and kyle larson when they won 11 victories so i think chemistry is so much a part of what we see in the cup series well xfinity and trucks also between crew chief and and driver and Chad and Jimmy did have that tremendous chemistry. There were times they got on each other's nerves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were times when you could look at, uh, go back to audio, and and Chad would basically hint about how drive, how to drive the car and do this, do that. And Jimmy would say, "You do your job, and I'll do my job, and <laughs> we'll do." You know, okay, sorry, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> and they did get on each other's nerves, but I mean that's like a good marriage. Uh, there are times that you have to have a, a, a blowout, if you will, <laughs> and that, that doesn't mean you don't love each other. It's just that sometimes you get on each other's nerves and you have to kiss and make up, and and that's what they had to do a few times. But back to your original question, um, you know, there we are. Those of us in a nation, uh, uh, those of us in this nation as well as around the world in those years, especially two, 2009 and 2010. I mean, it was a lot going on in those years and sponsor wise and corporate wise. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, there's so many things upside down. And I think we were, quite frankly, I think we were very lucky to keep this, this sport going and vibrant in those years. Really, it would be hard, I think, for me as a team owner to go to anybody in those years, especially 2010, and say, hey, I have a race team and either I need you to honor what you've already signed or worse than that, I need you to uh, sponsor my race car. I know that you just, your stock went down to a dollar a share, but Hey, 
you know, from $22 a share, but hey, let's go racing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm glad I wasn't a team owner looking for help in those years because it was tough. Right. right. I mean, I think your job went away that year in 2010 or 2009. Mine went away after 25 years, but NASCAR Illustrated, NASCAR Scene, it was hard. And I was just thankful every day that I didn't have a team and I had three or 400 people depending on me to keep it going. My gosh, it was tough. And uh, so well, we rebounded from that and we're still here and thank the, thank the good Lord. We're still here, but uh, it was, it was a tough time for racing. It was a good time, a tough time for, uh, for corporate America, really, really tough time, but we're still racing. Here we are. And uh, we're still moving forward and now we're looking at a brand new car and here we go for 2022 but boy exactly. it was tough yeah right let me let me ask you a question and this is another thing that a lot of people bring up and i don't think it's fair based upon jimmy's overall <clears throat> excuse me career track record all that stuff you know he failed to win. I, I I can't remember. I don't have the number right in front of me. It was I think it was like the, he he went winless in his like last 130 starts or something like that. And you know that's got a way on a driver that is so used to you know success and and winning and championships and race wins and all that kind of thing. And and again, I'm trying not to be unfair in asking this, but did Jimmy maybe? stay a little longer than he should because it, it almost seemed like it was just an abrupt end for success. I mean, you look at how he was doing, you know, he wins the championship in 20, well, 20, 2006 to 2010, again in 2013, again in 2016. And then by the middle of 2018, he was like a forgotten guy. And he'll, he, it's not like he forgot how to drive, but, you know, it's not like he and Chad, you know, although they eventually did, you know, go different directions in the last year or so, but, you know, the, the fact that he still believed he could win, still believed he could win championships and just couldn't do it. A lot of guys have stuck around in this sport and I'm not going to mention any names. We did talk about this a little bit off the air, but I, you know who I'm talking about. There are certain drivers that, you know, have stayed longer than they probably should have. But I, to me, Jimmy was still, if not in his prime, certainly not far from his prime, you know, 2017, 18, 19, and 20, he just didn't have the success. Do you think he did stay or overstay the time he should have stayed in NASCAR? Or did you think, or do you think that, you know, what was his philosophy, I guess, of staying to maybe try to right the ship and the ship just never was able to get righted, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I think he was in a very unique spot and it was how how many people are in the world? Six billion people. Right. And he was in a he was in that one unique spot. I'm the only guy on earth that has a shot at winning an eighth cup series championship. Mm-hmm. And I need to stay as long as I can and try to win it because obviously Richard Petty is not going to win it. And the late Dale Earnhardt, uh, that's not going to happen, of course. And, uh, you know, and so I'm, I'm in a place where if I could just somehow get that eighth title, then I could step away. And so I've got a great team. I've got a great car. I've got a great team owner. I've got one of the most potent uh, race teams on earth. And, I just got to try to do it. So each time you enter a race and you try to win, okay, well, let's go next week and let's go next week Mm -hmm. and let's go next week. And you continue to try it. You know, if if that seventh title had not been on, or excuse me, the eighth title had not been on the line. Okay. Maybe he could have possibly stepped away sooner, but I, I know that had to, well, I know for sure it was very much on his mind to try to pull that off. And, mm. you know, maybe he did, maybe he did stick around a little bit longer um, than he should, but, you know, I mean, he was, again, had a great team, great car, great team owner had, had proven that he had won seven championships with his well-oiled operation and all we just, we had a missing ingredient or two, not, starting completely over with a brand new organization, brand new everything. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think if I had been in his shoes, I would have tried as long as I could until finally it reached a point where, okay, I don't think it's going to happen. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, but you know what, the best scenario, uh, the couple of guys that come to my mind and that retired in 1966, both of them did was Junior Johnson and Ned Jarrett. Mm-hmm. And they were both tied at 50 wins apiece. And Junior Johnson had told me himself, he said, had I known that I had six, uh, 50 wins and Ned Jarrett had 50, I would have waited a little bit longer just <laughs> to get a couple more wins right. over Ned. Right. But right. I didn't realize, I wasn't thinking, I didn't realize it. But the best scenario is to win uh, a championship and then wave goodbye because you're, you're uh, on top of your game there's nothing more to prove, mm-hmm. but it's so hard to do that because you're on top of your game and you keep thinking to yourself, okay, well, I'm the best right now and I need to come back next year and get that next championship. So it's so, so, so difficult to, to step away when you're on top, but that's the best scenario is, you know, could he have uh, stepped away in 2016? Well, sure. But everyone would say, well, whoa, 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 wait, hold the phone. You got to get eight. You can't step away. And his sponsors, I'm sure, said that. His team right. owner, Rick Hendricks, sure, surely said that. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's my take on it. I mean, he had to try as long as he possibly could until in his heart and soul, he sits down on the deck with a glass of wine and says, you know what? I, I don't feel it. I don't think it's coming. And that's that's the question he had to answer to himself. So now – moving out of the cup series into the IndyCar series. It's that's a bucket list thing for him. I'm sure he just wanted to try it before he finally, finally, finally says, okay, I'm done racing and I'm, I'm going to move on to other things. So that's where he is now. You know, you raise a, a number of good points, but the one thing I want to kind of zero in on is the IndyCar uh, aspect. You know, when he announced that was, you know, that uh, 2020 was his last season in NASCAR, um, it was not a, how do I phrase this? He didn't get the going away. I think that other guys like a Jeff Gordon did when he announced he was retiring. Jimmy just, you know, there was, there were certainly acknowledgements. There were certainly, you know, well wishes. There was, you know, some tracks gave him going away presence, all that kind of thing. But I think that he shocked. And I do mean the word shocked everybody when he announced you know it was i think it was i want to say august i think or maybe september i believe of 2020 that he was going to try his luck at indycar the following season and you know here's a guy at the time he was i think what 44 45 whatever it was he shocked everybody by saying he was going to go to indycar now admittedly the first season last year his rookie season in indycar didn't go anywhere near, I'm sure, what he had planned and certainly did not meet the high goals and expectations he has as a race car driver, period, not just an IndyCar. Uh, he he had, I think, his, his best finishes. He had two 17th place finishes. That was it. He raced in 12 of the 16, se, se, I'm sorry, 17 races that were on the schedule. He did not do ovals, which I, I think a lot of people still question that because you know, his success in NASCAR was primarily on ovals. Um, and Tony Kanan would fill in for him at places like, like Indianapolis. You know, Jimmy did not run the Indianapolis 500 last year. 2022, we're, we're just getting ready to start the season. They, they start February 27th down in St. Petersburg, Florida, the IndyCar series. Jimmy will run all 17 races, including the Indy 500. This is also, you know, to use the well-worn phrase, a contract year. He has a two-year deal with with uh, Chip Ganassi. The first year, obviously, didn't go quite what I think everybody expected or had hoped for. What about 2022? I mean, is this a is this a make or break year for Jimmy, or is it? Or how do you kind of see? Will he continue racing in IndyCar after this season if he does have a much better season? I mean, how do you kind of analyze? what 2022 is going to look like for Jimmy Johnson. Well, he's, he's got a year under his belt in the Indy cars. Uh, I, I sort of think it could be a a make or break here, but you know, here's my concern. Uh, You know, I, I go back to, and I wish, believe me, Jerry, when I say this, I wish Jimmy all the best in the world. I want him to be successful 
in IndyCar is I wanted him to be able to go to victory lane as much as possible. I want him to succeed in this, okay? But I, there's always been a concern for me uh, on this venture. Uh, and I go back, and I please understand, I don't wish anything negative towards mm-hmm. Jimmy doing this at all, but I have to go back to Neil Bonnet. You know, Neil Bonnet, 1994, everyone said, okay, it's time to stop. And Neil said, no, I need to, I need to keep going. I need to keep trying. I, I'm not ready to stop. I need to keep doing this. We, we saw what happened to Neil. Yep. Yep. And he, he passed away in, a, in a, a crash during practice at Daytona. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that what, other than a personal uh, milestone, what do you have to prove? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're a seven-time Cup Series champion with 83 wins. I mean, what what's the ultimate goal? Do you want to get... Do you want, maybe I don't know this, and maybe there is something that's been said. Do you want to spend the next five years in the Indy cars? Do you want to win the Indy 500? Do you want to win a championship? Great, all all well and good if you do. Wonderful. But uh, I love you. I don't want to see anything go wrong, okay? And uh, I'm not saying something will go wrong. I'm just saying that you have great success in stock cars. it's just a concern. You know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I apologize for bringing up a negative here, but I just want his safety to be number one on the list. And I agree. Um, you know, so, and he could, this could be 2022, could be, could be a phenomenal year for Jimmy. Let's put that out there. I want that to be the positive we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. But uh, Indy cars are much different than stock cars. And uh, I don't know. I just, uh, again, I don't want to leave this with a negative tone. It's just that uh, what is the outcome? What is, what is the ultimate goal here? That's the, that's the question. Right. Exactly. That's, that's the question because you've got a seven time cup series champion uh, that has done it phenomenally on the NASCAR side. I want him to do the very best he could possibly do on the IndyCar side. Sure, I'd love to win him, see him to win the Indianapolis 500. I think that would be a tremendous story. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that happens, I want him to stand up and say, okay, I'm retired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. So anyway, I just I just want it to be a really good Cinderella-type finish to his career. That's what I want to see happen. And, uh, yeah, he's just a phenomenal person, phenomenal friend, phenomenal driver, the, I mean, some, and uh, I just, uh, you know, I've said this throughout this entire podcast of how little, uh, there's something missing about how much he's accomplished and, and we, there should have been a lot more hype to that, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Do you right. agree with what I'm saying? I do. I do. And, you know, will Jimmy stick around after this contract, you know, this, the final the year of this two-year contract. I mean, you know, a lot is riding upon the success or lack thereof. If he doesn't have the success, I still think he's going to probably have at least one or two more years. However, that being said, you've heard him say this numerous times, especially when he made this uh, announcement, that he was going to go to IndyCar and then the continual, um, progression of the transition that he's made into IndyCar, he almost always says about his two daughters, how by going to IndyCar, he essentially cut his NASCAR schedule by more than a half. He has more time to spend with his family. You know, he's enjoying his time. You know, he's, he's enjoying uh, watching his kids grow up and, and being there. And yeah, he races half the season. Great. Um, you know, he's a great ambassador, not just for IndyCar and NASCAR, but just the motorsports or all sports world for that matter. I mean, he's just such a, a great role model in that. I'm going to ask you a question that I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks, and I don't know why I've been thinking about it, because it really it doesn't really play to what we're talking about for this season with him and IndyCar. But we saw in 2021, I think, what was it, back in June, I want to say it was, we saw Jeff Gordon 
you know, announced that he was leaving the TV booth and he was going to become the number two man at Hendrick Motorsports and eventually probably replace Rick Hendrick when he decides to retire as the number one guy at Hendrick Motorsports. What about Jimmy Johnson after his foray into IndyCar? Do you see him coming back, particularly into NASCAR, in some kind of a maybe not necessarily an ownership capacity, but certainly a management slash administrative slash official capacity. I mean, could he come back? I mean, I don't know if there'd be room for him at, at Hendrick because Jeff's going to be there. Could he become somebody within the, um, the NASCAR hierarchy of the administration? And, you know, it just hit me now as I'm talking about this, it just dawned on me. What about Jimmy Johnson? at some point, maybe replacing Jim France as the head of NASCAR. Because, I mean, what better person to succeed Jim France? You know, I mean, Jim's still, I think, what, Jim is 73, I think it is, if I remember correctly. Uh, so he's still got, you know, several more years that he can be a, a great leader in this sport. But, you know, could Jimmy, or would Jimmy even want to, when he's done racing, could he become a administrator either with a team or potentially a nascar official and maybe a high ranking if not you know the number one guy in nascar because he would be able to see all sides of everything and you know he'd been there as a driver and certainly he's you know he had all those interactions with you know folks like you know john darby mike helton etc etc uh what are your thoughts about jimmy after jimmy the racer concludes well i I could see Jimmy possibly going to Hendrick Motorsports and working with Jeff uh, in some type of management role down the road, more so than I could see him working as a manager or some type of executive role with NASCAR. But I'll tell you where I see him probably doing more than that. Quite honestly, I see him in a, in a television booth more than anywhere mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because, uh, I mean, now, granted, you know, like myself, somebody would have to get him, you know, uh, maybe up him a little bit as far as excitement. If something happened in a, you know, in the booth, and try to get him amped up a little bit. But I mean, mm -hmm. as far as that goes, um, I do think that he would be excellent in the in the booth because he could. But he would he'd be the calmest guy in the booth. Let's let's say that. <laughs> I know that would be the case. Uh, but yeah, I think he'd do do an excellent job with one of the one of the major networks. Uh, whether it be Fox or NBC, sure, I think he'd be a great asset to to that team. But yeah, I could see him going to work maybe with Hendrick Motorsports in a, a higher management role or doing some coaching, possibly with some some of the younger drivers. By far, could be a real asset to that end of the organization. And uh, yeah, because he's got a lot to offer those those guys. And and uh, by by far, I think that would be really good for for Hendrick Motorsports and uh, to help coach them along for sure. Final question about Jimmy, and we have a couple of other segments we want to talk about too as well, but a final question I want to pose to you about Jimmy, Ben, is, you know, he came from such a, like I said earlier, an unpredictable background. I mean, he, you know, who would have thought that, you know, a guy who was a surfer in high, high school who, you know, raced motorcycles, off-road motorcycles. He also raced, you know, four wheel, um, four wheelers in, in like Baja and that kind of thing. Who would have thought that he would become one of the greatest champions in the world? I, I see a lot of similarities and I didn't really see this until last year. Admittedly, I, I will say that, but I do see a lot of similarities by the way that, Jimmy evolved and the way Kyle Larson, the defending cup champion has evolved. Now, admittedly, Jimmy tastes success a lot sooner than Kyle because Kyle has been in the sport, what, uh, seven, eight, nine years, whatever it's been already. And mm -hmm. he finally won his first championship. I mean, a lot of people kept on saying, Oh, he's going to win. He's going to win. He's going to win it. And it, it just, it never happened until 2021. Could Kyle Larson essentially in your mind, be the next Jimmy Johnson, or will there ever be another Jimmy Johnson? Just because, you know, we see such parity in the sport, we see such parity between manufacturers, you know, and, and that's what the sport has um, uh, evolved into is, is uh, you know, making the racing as tight as possible. And, you know, there's the old saying, uh, you know, you can take a driver out of a car and you can put another driver just as good in, in him uh, as him into the same car and he'd have the same success, if not better. So, 
what, what do you think about Kyle Larson? Is he the next Jimmy Johnson or, or, or not? Well, it, it's a great question, Jerry. And I think it depends upon the cars that we're racing. It depends upon the points championships that we're racing. If I'm not mistaken, it seems like Jimmy has won championships with like four different types of cars, maybe. That there's sounds something, right, yeah. I think there's some... Uh, I mean, he, whatever you, the point I'm trying to make is whatever you threw at Jimmy, there's, he would win championships with Mm -hmm. whatever you threw at him. Mm -hmm. If, if, uh, the, doesn't matter what it was, he's, he could win whatever it was that you threw at him in his direction. He's won numerous championships. And so, but it all depends on what we're racing. It depends on, the schedules it depends on uh the types of cars it depends on everything so it it's possible that you would have kyle larson win that many championships you got to consider his age there's so many factors to that he's only 29 Um, that's the thing is i think a lot of people are not really seeing that you know kyle's only 29 years old i mean he's got a good 10 maybe 12 years ahead of him I, I liken him kind of like to a Kyle Bush because Kyle's what 34, I think now. And you know, he's got a couple of championships in his, you know, his back pocket. I think that Kyle Larson, you know, he finally got over that hump. He got that first championship. I think this is a guy that could very much mirror the success that Jimmy Johnson had, as opposed to a guy like Kyle Bush mirroring Jimmy Johnson, because Kyle's, you know, he's had some up seasons, he's had some down seasons, whereas Kyle, you know, he's had some ups and downs as well, but I think that winning that first championship is going to go a long, long way towards establishing him as, you know, one of the, the, the best drivers. I mean, he already was one of the best drivers, but I mean, my point is that he's got the confidence, he's got the championship ring, he's got the trophy, he's got the, you know, m- many millions of bucks in the bank from, from winning the championship. I think that, you know, at the age of 29, going on to 30, Kyle Larson could definitely go out and win. I'm going to say at least three to five more championships. I think that he has right. that capability. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, but I mean, and this is hypothetical to the maximum. Mm-hmm. Here we are in 2022. You know, are we going to be racing electric cars in 2032? Right, or, right, right. Or 2027 or 2025. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't know because there's so many things that they're moving so quickly you know, more so than, than ever uh, right now. So, I mean, there's so many factors that could be uh, put into play. Uh, where where will, we, will we race? What will we, what are we going to race? Who are going to, what are the rules going to be? All these different things. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen. But, yeah, I predict by 2032, we'll be racing electric cars. I really mm-hmm. do. And so, I mean, look at just the, amount of change that we've seen to the race car that's coming up for 2022. So in five years, what, what are, you know, how could that work out for us? How, what's the race car going to be like? So it wasn't, what are the drivers going to be like? Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this comes down, you know? Exactly. All right. We've talked so much about Jimmy Johnson, but we're in our next episode, uh, segment of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jimmy Johnson directly and indirectly because we're going to talk about the number of the car number 48 you know this is obviously episode number 48 of a lifetime in nascar podcast and we like to focus in on the car number that is equivalent with the episode number that we have for the podcast and so of course this is an episode number 48 ben let's talk about number 48 obviously jimmy johnson 83 wins i mean goes without saying but you know this car number has had a very good history with some significant guys in it let's let's what, tell us a little bit more about the 48 okay sure well jerry number 48 is uh the way it came to hendrick motorsports is very very simple it was the uh doubling of the number 24 they had so much success with jeff gordon and when uh jimmy johnson came on board in 2001 they said oh what the heck let's just double it so that's how they came up with 48 there was a driver by the name of James Hilton who mm-hmm. ran for many years. He won in the car in 1970 at Richmond and 1972 at Talladega. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Bill Norton who ran the car number for the first time November 11th, 1951 at Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Uh, 
and I'm sorry, pardon me, I said that wrong. Corral, California is actually where he uh, uh, ran the car mm-hmm. number. And that track, by the way, there was a, a, a movie made the Mickey Rooney was in the movie in 1949 and uh, it was called the big wheel. And it was an <laughs> open wheel type IndyCar right. uh, uh, movie. And so that, if you ever want to look it up on YouTube, I think you can find it, but that that's the particular racetrack that uh, this uh, Bill Norton ran the, uh, uh, that particular race on. And so that's the first time it actually ran uh as far as that particular car number that's interesting yeah now actually the the 48 go actually goes back even further than that you said 51 with bill norton it actually for the first time ever was was raced in 1949 and that was who ben oh that was lee smith uh, september 11th 1949 uh let's see and uh he finished 18th after starting 28th in that particular race right 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 now you mentioned uh james hilton and he you know, he was around the sport for a long long time as a driver team owner etc and he also is our driver of the week let's talk a little bit more about james hilton i mean you know he's a guy that um you know in my opinion he was a good driver, did not get the recognition that he probably deserved a lot of times, but also at the same time, he drove cars that, how do I say this? He, because he didn't have the funding that other better teams had, you know, he, he didn't have the kind of equipment around him that would have allowed him to win more races, to win more championship, you know, to win a championship or, or even compete for a championship. But, you know, James Hilton as a whole, your, your thoughts about him and his time in the, in the world of NASCAR. Well, he was a really, really neat guy that uh, raced actually from 1964 to 2009. He ran the Arca series after that mm-hmm. for quite a few years. Uh, and sadly we, we lost uh, James on April 28th, 2018. He was coming back from Talladega super speedway in the early morning hours after running a race there and they, uh, one of his crew members was driving the, uh, the transporter and someone I think pulled out in front of them on the interstate and, uh, lost James and another person, I believe his son lost their lives in the crash uh, coming back from Talladega that year. Uh, and was so sad that we lost James in the accident. It was on the highway there coming back uh, towards Atlanta but uh, yeah, James was a longtime competitor in the NASCAR Cup Series. Actually, started uh, 602 races in the Cup Series. As we said, he won twice, 140 top fives, 301 top tens, and had four pole positions. And one of the funny stories about James was in, I believe this was 1975, they had 40 cars that were going to qualify at Talladega. They had 40 cars in the field, but NASCAR required everyone to run two laps around Talladega. It might have been three laps. And so James kept saying, you got 40 cars in the garage. There's 40 cars in the field. Why do we have to qualify? It's just something you got to do, James. You got to do it. So what he did was, and he was a little bit of a prankster. So what James did was he got the car out and he went around Talladega's 2.66 mile racetrack at about 35 miles an hour <laughs> and for two laps, maybe three. And it, no kidding, 35 miles an hour. And of course the NASCAR officials were furious when he got back to the garage and the kid said, James, what was that all about? And he said, well, you said I had to qualify, but you didn't say how fast I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> so as it turned out, they were not very happy with Mr. Mr. Hilton that day. That is a true story, and so uh, needless to say, I think they probably made him start last uh, in the field since he ran so slow. But uh, yeah, he was James always had a cigar too. By the way, he yep. was. Uh, yep. Remember that, Jerry? I always yep. had a cigar. Yep. And uh, but yeah, just a really nice guy down. Uh, uh, I believe he was from South Carolina, and uh, always, always, always had 
you know, competitive cars. He was a backmarker, independent type driver for right. many years, right. meaning he didn't have factory support. But I always came to the racetracks, and then when it got too a little too expensive to run the Cup Series, uh, he ran the ARCA Series for many years. And like I say, we lost him in April 2018 in that uh, highway accident, leaving Talladega, headed back home, and uh, just a super nice guy. Exactly. I think I only interviewed James once, and I think it was a phone interview. That was, I don't know, maybe, uh, wow, gosh, probably made like 2003, 2004. But yeah, he, he was very, um, he was very friendly, very, very friendly. And, you know, like I said a, a few moments ago, had he had more competitive equipment, and, you know, it's difficult when you're an independent operator or an independent team owner, and you don't have that factory support to be competitive, but if he would have had you know more competitive equipment and maybe some some better sponsorship money, I think he could have made uh, much more of a significant name for himself. But however, that being said, and I said this in last week's podcast, and you know what how you what you said about his um, his record over 600 starts in the Cup Series and over 300 of them were in the top with top ten finishes, and that goes yes. back to what I said last week about you know where I kind of draw the distinction of whether a driver is good or great or, you know, mediocre, fair, what have you. I mean, to finish in the top 10 in more than half of the races you start, to me, that tells me that James Hilton was a very, very good driver. Yes, he was. And he had some, some very competitive, like you say, some very competitive finishes. Uh, pretty good uh, in the uh, in the early 70s, I believe in 1972, he finished second to Richard Petty in the points mm-hmm. uh, also. But I do want to correct myself, Jerry. Uh, I, I misspoke a minute ago. Bill Morton, uh, Bill Norton was the uh, first winner at Corral, California, using the number 48, November 11th, 1951. First time used Lee Smith at Langhorne, Pennsylvania, uh, on September 11th, 1949. So. Okay. Great. My apologies. Oh, no worries. No worries at all. And speaking of racetracks, so it leads us into the final segment of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We do this every week. We talk about our track of the week. And you know, a lot of these tracks have gone on and become, you know, uh, shopping centers, apartment complexes, subdivisions, etc. But, you know, while they existed, they had some pretty good um, uh, history behind them. And so t- Ben, tell us wh- who our track of the week is for this week, episode 48 yep. of the Lifetime of NASCAR. Yeah, the track of the week is Smoky Mountain Raceway in Maryville, Tennessee. It was on NASCAR's Cup Series, then Grand National uh, schedule from August 13th, 1965 to April 15th, 1971. Among the winners, Richard Petty had the most victories there with six. There's a half-mile dirt track that was later paved and uh, just some great racing there. Uh, I think Paul Goldsmith had some victories there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Fireball Roberts won some races, Rex White. and uh, But, yeah, it was just a, a great uh, short track. And then when R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company brought the Winston label to uh, become the series sponsor, they cut out a lot of the short tracks. Mm-hmm. And brought 29 races to the Cup Series. Most of those were super speedways, and a lot of their short tracks were cut out. But yeah, Smoky Mountain Raceway in Maryville, Tennessee, was uh, one of the great little short tracks that uh, ran for several years. And of course, Richard Petty was the master of that one until it went away. Exactly. Well, Ben, I think this is probably the, I say this almost every week, but we keep on topping ourselves. I mean, this is episode 48. We had so much to talk about, about Jimmy Johnson. Uh, you know, you've got your segment uh, to start the show as well, where, you know, that uh, uh, was fantastic. And, you know, next week we have episode number 49, and it's going to be a very interesting episode because not just the car number 49, but we're going to be uh, preluding or pre previewing, I guess, probably is a better way. It's and the prelude, if you will, to the Bud Light clash that's going to be at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I mean, NASCAR spent over a million dollars constructing a racetrack, a, a, a quarter mile racetrack around one of the most, uh, the infield is one of the most iconic race or um, uh, stadiums in the in the world. And this is also the start of the 99th season for uh, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I mean, they've obviously had a lot of 
racing in the past, primarily motorcycles. Uh, there's been some off-road racing, you know, that they built, you know, uh, uh, tracks within the infield, but they're going to have an actual legitimate NASCAR race. It won't be for points, but I think it's going to be very popular. And the other thing too, Ben, is that really whoever came up with this idea at first, I think a lot of people just go, huh? But it makes so much sense when you look at the bigger picture, because it's going to be on February 6th, which is exactly one week to the day of Super Bowl 56, which is going to be right down the road there in, uh, was it Inglewood, California? And this is obviously the LA Memorial Coliseum right outside of USC. Um, and I know that area very well, been there many times. I think that this is going to be uh, a very, um, uh, an event that's going to attract a lot of fans who want to, or who are going to be going to the Super Bowl and they're going to want to get out of the, you know, the cold weather or, you know, the winter weather. I mean, people, especially from like the Northeast or the Midwest, the upper Midwest, you know, they're tired of all the snow and the frigid, frigid temperatures. What better way to go out and see the Super Bowl than to come out a week early and see the, the Bush like classic at the LA Coliseum. I'm really pumped about it. pumped up about this race. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I am too. And you know, it, it's almost like the 1979 Daytona 500 mm -hmm. in the respect this is a lot of people that maybe don't know a lot about NASCAR that are going to be uh, able to see NASCAR possibly for the first time out in California and be introduced to it uh, by way of the, the race that's going to be held at, at the LA Coliseum. And then the next week they'll be able to see the Super Bowl. But this could be a way to introduce a lot more fans to racing, to NASCAR racing. And, it, you know, it, it could be, I think it's going to be a big hit and we'll, we'll just see how this goes, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a brand new venue there and uh, something that we might be doing for many years to come. You know, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because I had been trying to get some kind of an answer, if you will, about this. You know, the track is, you know, being constructed. It's a million dollar plus project. And of course, right down the road, maybe about 30, 40 miles over there um, east of the track, you know, we're going to see the uh, the changeover of California Speedway or the Auto Club Speedway um, from a two mile super speedway to a half mile bull ring. And, you know, we're going to see that probably the construction will probably be done 2024 maybe maybe 2023 possibly but this is the question i don't have an answer for and i'm wondering if you've heard anything and i'm sure a lot of fans are wondering about this as well too will nascar somehow be able to um keep the track they're building for the la coliseum and essentially have two races every year for points in the LA market back to back or potentially maybe, you know, one part in one season and the other part in the latter part of the season. I mean, do you see the LA Coliseum becoming a permanent venue for the cup series to run races on in addition to the, you know, the planned half mile track that's going to replace the two miler track at auto club speedway out in, uh, in Cal in, um, um, you know, Eastern, the Eastern part of the LA suburban area. Well, you know, if, uh, as I, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if I put a million dollars into something, I would really not want to walk away from it. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, I hope I hope I've had a really constructive meeting with the folks that own it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we've signed a contract to say we're coming back and, and protect what I've spent my money on. So. I mean, that, you know, the three-fourths of the track was already built, so to speak, as far mm -hmm. as the grandstands and all those types of things. And so I've put my money into it, and I, it'd be great if if they could use it for other things. And uh, sure, there might. I'm sure there's got to be something in their back pockets to uh, ensure that they're going to use it more than just this one time or uh, something on the schedule, a points paying race, maybe two, Some, mm -hmm. something's got to be in the works. Yeah, I would think so. Exactly. Well, Ben, my friend, this, uh, it's always a bittersweet thing to, we, you know, we would love to go for another couple more hours, maybe a whole yeah. day we could do it, but 
you know, we have to come to the conclusion of this episode, episode 48 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. As usual, great time with you and uh, definitely looking forward to talking about the uh, the uh, Bush Light class clash at the LA Coliseum. Next week, we're going to have a preview of that uh, event for, it will take up a good part of this podcast. We'll talk about episode number 49 and who drove the number 49, the success they had as we've done every single week here on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Ben, great talking to you again as always, and we will catch you next week on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast right here. Take care, everyone. Have a good week. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.